Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, be sure to check out all of our content. Go to focuscompound.com where Jeff writes about ideas on investing. Follow me on Twitter at Focused Compound. We manage capital at Focus Compounding Capital Management. And then of course, we upload uh, tons of content both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. So make sure you hit that subscribe button um, uh, to be able to get access to all of that, really just a notification. Um, so in today's podcast, we are going to continue on with our capital allocation series. We are going to talk about three companies. Uh, I thought about skipping over them because there wasn't really a lot to talk about with them, but I was like, okay. you know what, we're just going to go over it. We'll, we'll batch this all into one podcast and talk a little bit about that. Um, we are going to talk about a textile company. It's so funny when you think about Buffett and Berkshire mm -hmm. and everything, you associate that Berkshire was really the only textile operation that he right. bought and they purchased. Uh, but we're actually going to talk about a different one here today as well. And just as a little twist, I thought, why not look at a modern day textile company or a company that just deals similar okay. situation one that is a micro cap uh that actually people bring up often i wonder do you, do you have an idea of what it is i'm not sure i know which one it, it is, is lake is the ticker l-a-k-e people it, always bring that up to me it's a lakeland industries what is, is that it? what the actual see i'm i'm always like it's like an author right i always forget what the author's name is but uh ticker let's see l-a-k-e E, like, yeah, Lakeland Industries. Yeah, it had been a net net at times. Yeah. Interesting. So we will uh, talk about that. Um, by capital allocation, I'm going to put the uh, link from Amazon in the description. Jacob McDonough is the author. He sent us the PDF version of his book so it's we can all book. learn mm -hmm. together. Uh, it is a great book. Uh, so I'll put his information in the description. Go buy his book. Go buy his book. Uh, go buy his book. So Cypress Insurance Company. Again, there's not a lot to really say about uh, a lot of these. These were smaller acquisitions. Right. Um, uh, we are in 1977 right now. He purchased Cypress Insurance Company for $2.7 million. Uh, the business earned $12.6 million in premiums in 1977. Uh, so the price to sales ratio was 0 0.21. Uh, you said something interesting on a couple podcasts before when we were talking about Buffett and insurance and how he's really an insurance guru, right? That's like where his circle of competency is. Mm -hmm. But it's so funny when you going through this process of analyzing his earlier investments how it's like he ran insurance companies he has right. not just been an investor like he's literally been an operator yeah and i think i said that i don't think that other than national downey berkshire's um insurance operations were that great until they got a gg and um, geico was great and they you know invested in that they bought a lot of that and that eventually became berkshire but um his real successes were national indemnity and in geico and some of the others you can see it was a mixed bag now he was able to invest a lot using them um, and Berkshire, other things about Berkshire were a big success, but I don't think, unless you read the snowball really carefully, I don't think people realize how mixed Berkshire's uh, performance was in insurance in the early days. It, so it was a different kind of company. It was a lot more in stocks where they grew in the early days. Right. Mm -hmm. And in some of the operating businesses like C's candies and all that, you're not going to hear them talk a lot about how, about how well they did in insurance in those days. Um, uh, from the 1977 Berkshire Hathaway Annual Report. On December 23rd, 1977, an insurance subsidiary of the company purchased 
for approximately 2.7 million cash, all of the outstanding capital stock of Cypress Insurance Company, South Pasadena, California. I wonder who had some influence over that. Yeah, could be a monger. Uh huh. Yep. Um, so Jacob goes into it, he says little financial data is disclosed on an individual company level for Cypress following the acquisition. However, Berkshire did disclose the results of the overall workers' compensation segment in the annual reports. Berkshire had minimal volume in workers' compensation prior to 1977. So some things that stand out here, right? Mm-hmm. From 1978 to 1982, you have uh, premiums go down by what, half? Yeah, from 29.8 million to 15.9 million. And inflation was extremely high from 1978 to 1982. So what does that tell you? The real volume of business dropped by a lot more than half. Uh, so the economy's growing, there's demand for stuff growing, there's probably a lot, the market for workers' comp is probably a lot bigger, and yet you're writing less than half as much. Possibly it's because of that first part we see there where they had an underwriting loss. Um, so you could see they probably had a combined ratio of like 110 or something in 1978 based on that loss. Um, so because of that, uh, you know, they, they may have had trouble. And in fact, we know they had trouble because I think Munger's talked about things and stuff like that, about, uh, workers comp issues in California. Uh, so what type of insurance is that then? So workers comp has, I would think a key area to be worried about would be, um, fraud. Personally, workers' comp would be a really, really high fraud possibility area. Like how? Right. The person isn't actually injured and pretends they're injured. Got it. And yeah. so that this is where you have the PI taking pictures of <laughs> someone lifting a box when they're at home and they say that at work they can't lift a box, you know, that kind of thing. Uh huh. Yeah. That's like, you've ever seen the office, uh, the episode of The Office where I think, what's his name? Um, gosh, I can't remember his name, but um, Michael Scott and uh dwight or try daryl they're trying to prove mm-hmm. that daryl is not actually injured okay yeah and then his sister is taking out the garbage <laughs> or something like that and they're like see that's daryl and it turns around and it was actually his sister that yeah. was doing it and so there you it kind of was like an awkward situation like oh that is not daryl yep yeah that's fine yeah i think that would be a high risk possibility is to be able to understand the fraud risks and things like that i wonder Come what back. eventually like what happened to this company over time did they just like let it run off or Cause you just, we don't, I, other than this book, it was the first time I really heard about the company and Buffett being involved with it. Uh, let's see. It's a fairly small part after 1984. Um, yeah. So they don't really talk about it after that kind of disappears because it's smaller even than the home state operations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a very mixed underwriting record, right? I mean, do you see in 1984 what the underwriting gain loss shows? Negative 12.5 million. Yeah, yeah. But what was the premiums that they wrote that year? 22.6 million. Yeah. So that, what is that? I mean, technically if they're reporting their combined ratio, that's over 150 or something like uh-huh. that. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's interesting. It'd be interesting to hear his perspective on what They have problems in urban auto too, which we talked, I mean, I don't know if we talked about it, but I mentioned that before that urban auto insurance was an idea that they had. It worked well in one place, which they bought and they tried to move into other cities. Also 1970s, 1980s, you know, you have to be careful if there were about differences between cities and other places, about differences between states. Um, California might not have been the best place uh, for some of the risks that we're talking about. So you could have misjudged a lot of things. And then there was a lot of inflation. 
but it shows you the difficulties there because that's a lot to lose. Yeah, absolutely. Paid a very uh, low price though. He did. Just so people well, know, paying one fifth the premiums. Yeah. So you, I mean, you could definitely, if you had a really good underwriting record, you could get one times premiums or more because obviously, if you're making ten percent a year, you know, if you had a ninety combined ratio or something like that, um, then even if you weren't growing, presumably you'd be worth one times premiums. You could make a little bit on the investment side, and um, and you'd have you know your your ten percent or whatever. So you'd figure that any very strong insurance company in terms of having underwriting profits would trade for more than than premiums um to the extent that you had some losses then you might trade for less than premiums a lot of people compare it to book that's the main thing they look at but in that case that's a very very low priced premiums yeah got it uh let's move to uh 1975 wombach mills yeah in the mid-1970s berkshire made the decision to acquire another textile mill Wombach Mills was purchased in April 1975 for $1.7 million. Berkshire had total equity of $92.9 million and total assets of $225.7 million at the time. So this was a very small acquisition relative to the overall company. And Jacob notes, it is interesting to see that Buffett made another textile acquisition a decade after originally taking over Berkshire. Yeah. What, what I mean... This is such a small position. This is such a small... So probably he just figured why. it would help Berkshire stay open longer is my guess of why he did it. So we can see that it's cheap, right? So they had a t they got a, uh, let's see, there's the unused tax loss carry forward of 2.6 million. So if they were ever able to produce enough earnings, then right there you have a lot of your purchase price. Mm -hmm. um, it, they made the investment below book value, as I said there, all of those sorts of things. But um, the problem would be similar to Berkshire uh, that, you know, if it didn't produce actual earnings and if its returns on capital were very, very low. Now he's putting in very little money, but on the other hand, he probably could have bought something pretty good in 1975 with 1.7 million. I mean, uh, 1975 stocks are really pretty cheap. So there's lots of things, you know, media companies and things he could have bought and gotten a much better return on, but he was getting incredibly low price. That's true. Mm -hmm. And he may have thought that this would help leave, get the two when combined because of the synergies from it, you know, that they'd be able to last longer. That's certainly a possibility. Yeah. It says in the 1975 Berkshire Hathaway annual report in 1975, Berkshire acquired additional textile products, manufacturing facilities, and additionally a textile finishing plant operating in jointly occupied facilities in Manchester, New Hampshire, by purchase of all of the outstanding capital stock of Wombeck Mills Incorporated. All right. And then they break down, Jacob broke down the sales in 1975 of Wombeck. They did 9.3 million and Berkshire did 23.5 million, the textile operation. So the total textile was 32.8 million. Right. But Berkshire sales. dropped a lot. So Berkshire sales actually dropped by a huge amount. The difference was made up by Wombeck. So that's why the textiles mm. looked like it didn't drop. That's a good point. Yeah, well, that's what he explains in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, right. So you can see they break it down um, with how much gross profit was delivered by Berkshire and then how much by Wombeck. So Gro Berkshire did have a really significant decline in terms of its gross profit, dropping from over $5 million to $3 million. Um, Wombeck, again, very cheap because... Look, he bought it for what did we just say? Um, less than two million, one point seven. What did we say? One point seven million. One point seven yeah. million. And the first year that he owned it, it generated about one point seven million in gross profit. Mm -hmm. And we're assuming it's sharing a lot of those operations with Berkshire. So I mean, that's probably a good return. 
like operating the operating expenses or something. yeah i mean it's, it's, it's hard synergies. to say that this wasn't a good return for berkshire just because of the things we know he got from it um did it really accomplish much and was there really much point in it it's less than um it's significantly less than one percent of book value at the time for berkshire mm-hmm. so it's like taking a less than one percent position in your stock portfolio or something if you're an investor it's increasing your commitment to berkshire if this had him keep berkshire open longer um berkshire textiles operations then maybe it hurt them in the long run right so like this might not actually have benefited him but if we're talking about the one-year return on it everything here looks like you're getting a very good one-year return you're basically getting a lot of your money back right away in terms of how much cash you put out versus how much you have an immediate increase in gross margin the tax things we talked about all that kind of stuff right it, it, so i it's hard to believe that he actually lost money on the deal itself but i don't know if if he hadn't done this deal he might have closed down uh, Berkshire faster and then reallocated the capital. The only thing I could say about why this might be seen as a bad deal is it might have caused him to keep more capital in textiles longer. Mm-hmm. But initially, it has a good payback. I wonder what they were doing. So they had a 17.5% gross margin versus uh, 12.6 million in, at Berkshire operations. Yeah. I just wonder what type of. Okay. You know, what's yeah. the, where's the discrepancy there? The difference in the gross margin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the last one, K&W Products Inc. Berkshire acquired K&W Products in January 1976 for $2.1 million. The business manufactures specialty automotive chemical products in Los Angeles, California, and Bloomington, Indiana. The company was formed in the 1940s and had a history of profitability. It's interesting that he's doing a lot more business in California. California, this time. And that, yeah, this is the period where... Um Buffett has not, uh, where Berkshire is not and not officially uh, married with um, Charlie Munger's operations there, but they are um, big owners in Blue Chip, and uh, they also own Diversified together, Buffett and Munger, and all mm-hmm. that. So spending more time there, yeah. So they're actually spending a lot of time. It, he's spending a lot of time in California. They're investing together and things and all that, but it's not officially. Um, uh, they're not officially merged. Yeah. So at the time. The textile operations were doing about forty-four point six million in sales and four point one million in gross profit. Gosh, a nine point three percent gross margin. Yeah. I mean, that is just awful. Two point six pre-tax margin. I mean, just the room for error there is just non-existent. Um, right. So that's not necessarily a bad year. They had a gross margin that was positive there, two point six. Uh huh. So it could apparently, I mean, uh, pre-tax, pre-tax margin. margin. Yeah. So apparently, the gross margin go even lower than that. You know, that's something you anticipate in that industry. Yeah. And K and W Products did sales of two point five million with gross profit of 1.45 million 57.6 percent gross margin yeah. pretty good that's an excellent gross margin yeah and that's not surprising too right for a manufacturing type, type business yeah so if for something that you actually manufacture Chemicals. that's in, right that's incredibly high gross mm-hmm. margin right because like um commodity chemicals would have gross margins that are you know a third of that or something um so it's some sort of specialty chemical thing which is when you get high returns on it often in terms of your gross margin but then you need to have enough scale because it is true that 30 percent in this case 37 percent of your expenses are fixed expenses because your business is so small i mean even adjusting this for today this is a very this is like a nano cap type company Mm -hmm. right this is like a the company doing 10 to 15 million dollars a year in sales or something in today's terms maybe something like that um so it it's a really small company so it's just the overhead is the issue obviously the gross margin is great and he paid what four to five times pre-tax income for the company yeah so, so you think um, about like a four to five year four and a half year p- payback and you're home free from there 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, with where corporate tax rates were, you know, that would be like high single digits PE today. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Has Buffett done anything else in like chemicals or anything like that? Lubrizol. Oh, okay. And in fact, this has some similarity to that, I would say. So that's something to keep in mind. I mean, just if similarity to me in looking at it, I wouldn't say necessarily um, that the products are the same that way or anything like that. But this is just not a big, it doesn't grow a lot and all that. And it's mature. And, you know, actually in this time period, Lubrizol was a hot stock, I think. Um, let's see. Yeah. So yeah, in the mid 1970s or something, it was kind of a nifty 50 stock at the time. Lubrizol. Berkshire would buy it like, you know, 30 years later or whatever, but. Jacob writes, K&W was a mature business and probably experienced little growth. Instead, it is likely that most of K&W's cash profits were sent to Berkshire to help fuel a little bit of its expansion. Yep. Very interesting. So let's look at Lake. Lakeland Industries. This is a modern day textile, I guess you could say, or they do stuff with apparel. Well, it's Let's see what if I do. remember, it's Manu safety that has to deal with gloves and things like yeah, that. Yeah, manufactures right? and sells industrial this protective is why clothing I'm, and accessories for the industrial. This is why I'm worried people are talking about it now and hadn't been talking about it before. Why? I've known about the company for a very long time because it's it's at times been a net net, but I feel like the reason why people are mentioning it lately is because of COVID. Got it. You don't think so? Well, that, that what's would, the share I mean, turnover look at last now? year? Right, forty-seven percent. Uh, revenue growth. Okay. And what's from the, 2020, what's the share turnover? Yeah, I was looking at that 863%. Right. This used to be a highly illiquid stock. So, I mean, we can, we can look at like volume or something in the, do you have like OTC markets for yeah. it? Yeah. So this stock was years ago, the stock was highly, um, illiquid or, uh, for a, a business that size. It's not a small business as we'll see in terms of the, I mean, it, of the kinds of businesses we look at in terms of actual sales volume, it's not that um, small, but it, it's of questionable profitability often, you know, um, sort of like you were saying. So um, if we look though at the chart at the bottom, if you go down, I mean, it's not generating a chart for you. Uh, oh, cause you're on the quotes yeah, page. Yeah. yeah. But if you look there and then you go to a longer term chart, like five years or max. Yeah. So you'll see there that there's no volume of the volume stuff down mm -hmm. there and then volume explodes. So if you go to five year, we could see better probably. Um, so you see how all the volume, the stock becomes highly liquid 2020. in 2020 <laughs> at the same time that that spikes. So we don't usually do things where we show you volume and, and prices and stuff. But if you notice, you'll see the big spike there in green on the volume mm -hmm. and the big spike you can see associated with that in the price at the same time. What date is it when you hover over it? It says that's the end of February, yeah, 2020. February 24th. Right. So it's about a month or so before all the, you know, the, the bottom of the market and the huge closures and COVID and everything. So it's at the point where people are starting to get concerned about that, trying to get in front of that. This is basically when you started to hear about everything. Yeah. And then it's very, um, has a lot of volume and a lot of volatility after that. To give you some indication, look, at the lowest points for, vol for volume now here, the very highest months in the past, right, going mm -hmm. back years and years ago. Don't even come near. So mm -hmm. uh, the slowest month now is huge compared to back then. So this shows you one of those things that can happen when a stock, which is totally illiquid, becomes um, uh, that was fairly illiquid and, and overlooked becomes not overlooked, right? Um, and then you get a situation too where there's it's almost like looking at cyclical companies. They could have like a three PE or you know three to four times free cash flow. But then you look and it's just they just had a massive year last year. So how much of that's going to be repeated going forward? That's what I would be mostly concerned about if I were to invest in the company. Right. Today. The issue here is gross profit more than doubled. All right. So when does that ever happen in a mm -hmm. company? That just is not common. 
And you can see that operating profit, obviously, because of that increase by even more than that. Right? Operating profit for people listening in 2020 was, uh, well, before everything, $6 million, And last year, it was $44 million. Right. And what you can see also is that there's an increase in margin at the same time that there's an increase in revenue. So this is you know pretty unusual that way. So you can see that there was a $51 million increase in sales, right? But then there was a um, $41 million increase in gross profit, which we don't know the details of that, but that suggests that the actual physical volume of goods moved wasn't particularly different. The prices were different. Now, it might not be. In theory, you could have something where you could have suddenly obtained things at lower costs and things like that, or that there's huge overhead cost absorption. I'm guessing it was a price increase. Um, so you just sold things at a higher price, right? At a much higher price. Did they get criticized for doing that? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, well, maybe they did different things. Yeah. Right. So maybe you made products for other people that you hadn't before that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but even look at prior to 2021, I mean, the return equity, 4%, 2%, 1%, 5.6%. I mean, kind right. of a lousy business. It, not really a loss making business. Um, and like I said, not small, it often is doing nearly a hundred million dollars in sales and pretty consistently, right? 90 million one year, hundred million the next, but it's not changing by a huge amounts. Gross profit isn't changing by a huge amount, but you can see that there. Now, one thing you can see is how much money a company can make if gross profit, if, if, um, the, uh, if you have a big increase in gross profit, right? So we can see that there, um, when I'm talking about this before, like, I don't know what the price on the company was back then, but it would have been pretty cheap versus gross profit. And so no one in their right mind would have imagined a big increase in volume to a level that the company has never seen. But one thing you could keep in mind is what if there are other companies when you can imagine that? And then the same things would happen as happened here, mm-hmm. right? So like a company that could raise prices a lot or a company that could suddenly do one and a half times the volume it was doing the year before, things like that. How do you handicap that going forward? If you were looking at a situation like this. I just avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. To be honest. Because of the reversion to the mean? Something that you don't think is sustainable? Well, this is the opposite of everything that we do. This is not an overlooked stock. We focus on overlooked stocks. Um, it's people betting for a continuation of something that's probably abnormal. Whereas we almost always bet on continuation of like the average, the mm-hmm. mean or whatever you want to call it. Um, so we tend to bet on the status quo here is the status quo literally today, but something that you would expect not to continue. And so I always avoid those kinds of things in some businesses. I guess you could imagine that they could become normal. It's the same thing as like the chip shortage stuff. You know, I don't buy those things because the chip shortage could continue for a while, but that's sort of the issue that you're running into there. Eventually, some people might bet on that to continue. Mm -hmm. Here, um, what are the multiples and stuff? It's still low versus today's prices though, right? I mean, versus today's earnings and things like that. It hasn't, it's not like it's assuming they're totally normal. Yeah, six times earnings. Right. Six and a half times EV to free cash flow, EV to sales 1.1. Right. Um, However... Normal earnings in prior periods would be about, oh, do you have the annual one so I can see that? Yeah. Um, so the way I would do it is based on prior levels of earnings, um, probably, let's see, what's the market cap on it? $226 million. So I'd say it's trading at about 40 Is that right? 
maybe 40 well ev's lower like normalized earnings yeah 40 times pre um pandemic earnings something like that i mean you can take different numbers uh it's hard to say because they were losing a little money to or breaking even in the years um 2012 2013 2014 but from 2015 to 2018 would be a logical thing to take um or 2019 you know take about five years right so we could take five years or so um so if you use that kind of number it depends or you could use the peak number right so some people could say okay well they're they're only um the peak number is only like 75 percent a little bit more than that lower um because they did once have like 12 million right in operating profit mm-hmm. and now they have 44 million so you could say well i'll use the 12 million so you know um from 2016 right and if you use that then you know so you're really just handicapping their best prior operating yeah and then we're talking about more like 25 times earnings or something like that not like whatever i said over 40 times Mm -hmm. earnings um the easier way to do it is like things like price to sales that's what i do for these pandemic companies when people ask how do you value them well you look at the sales before the pandemic happened use that as the sales use today's price as today's as the price so we can do that here um, so what were, what was revenue before the pandemic? It was a hundred million. Yeah. So two, for people back. listening, 2018, 96 million, 2019, 99 million, 2020, 108 million. So I just use a hundred. And then it's gone to 159 million. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So a hundred million. And it was pretty steady at a hundred million for, you know, eight years or so before then. Yeah. Even back to 2012. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it was 90, sometimes a hundred, but so a hundred million, that's a nice round number. So your enterprise value now is 170 some million. 173. All right. So 1.7 times the prior sales that you had and then you look at the operating profit and ask okay so if you want like a 10 times pre-tax profit you need to have like a 17 percent operating margin if you're willing to pay up a lot to like today's type multiples for any business you say this business is the same quality as that then you could go as low as like eight percent operating margin but you don't want to buy the business if it's had lower than an eight percent operating margin in the past um and you know it often has let's be honest about it it's only hit an eight percent operating margin in what were good years before the pandemic right mm-hmm. you know yeah so about half the time it was hitting that so about half the time it's hitting an earnings level that today would be sufficient to be about 20 times earnings if it went back to the sales of the past now the one thing to factor in is how much cash can it generate between now and then right so sure. we could look at free cash flow like what are they going to do with that cash yeah and then you can just look at it like, okay, it was a legal settlement or something. You know, you just look at it like, okay, we make a bunch of money one time. You know, it's sort of the reverse of what Buffett said about American Express and the salad oil thing. He said that loss is like losing one dividend check in the mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all it is. It's a one-time loss. And then the franchise isn't harmed by that. Here, it's a one-time gain, but then the franchise isn't improved by it, you know, you would assume. So because of that, you know, they made 20-some million, which is... Uh, Let's see. Um, do you have the front page again for me to see? So let's see. Yeah. And then you could divide that into like the number of shares and things like that. It wouldn't be hard to do. So that, that's earning something which on the market cap is um, going to be more than 10% of the market cap. So, you know, even it can't last, you know, two years, or something that it can continue at those levels though. So and completely not knowing the situation, not to be offensive to people that do but this isn't like a restaurant for example where they boomed through covid and probably post covid there now a bunch of more awareness is built up where they could still benefit somewhat from it right i would assume not i mean we know what the gross margins are we can read the business description um to me it has a lot it's always read like it has a lot to do with supply and demand Mm -hmm. 
uh, inventory management and things like that that we could look at. Um, yeah, I would say that. Right. So it, it could last for a while, but it's not likely to last forever unless there's societal changes in those things. And even if there are, then you expect other people to get involved. You know, um, there isn't a history of having good returns on invested capital, but in particular, there isn't much of a history of having good re- gross returns. So even if we look um, in the years prior, can we look at the balance sheet? Sure. Yeah. So if we look at the balance sheet going back a few years. Uh, we'll look at things like total assets and stuff like that. Yeah. So if you look, um, gross profitability was fairly low because their gross profits were 30 or 40 million type numbers, you know, things like that. Um, and their total assets that they had, even if I take out things like cash, were over 70 million. Um, now, I don't know all the details on that in terms of goodwill and stuff, but it doesn't look significant. So for that reason, we're talking about something that's generating far less than 50%. Or, or, or less, I shouldn't say far less, but less than a 50% gross return on net tangible assets employed. Um, that's not very good. It's okay. It can be done. You know, like um, as a rule, I would say you probably, you're probably not a great business if you can't generate about a 50% return on your gross, uh, pre-tax return on your gross, uh, uh, gross return on tangible assets employed. It then is a scale game after that, right? Um, there might be something there might be that I'm not thinking of, you know, an Amazon or something that looks bad on that score initially, but you don't realize that it can get to be hundreds of billions of dollars. So it takes a very long time to scale up, but assuming anything short of that, you want to see 50% plus type numbers. You know, these numbers are not great even compared to things like, uh, um, supermarkets and stuff like that in terms of profitability. They're in line with some distribution type companies, right? But they're kind of, they're not at the levels of like what we were just talking about with um, with uh, the chemical, chemical company. company yeah. 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 It's not in line with specialty chemicals, certainly. Yeah. So, but there's things that are attractive about it, right? Which is that you've now retained a lot of earnings, presumably have a really strong balance sheet that you could see. And um, the company might Lots be able to cash. do things differently in the future. Yeah. Look at that cash from 2000 prior 2020 it's the way that they report 15 million and then end of their 2021 uh, 53 million yeah it's not incredibly expensive versus things like current assets actually it's trading at um was it trading at about two times current assets or something like yeah, that about that mm-hmm. yeah so you know it's very financially solid and all of that and if it's scaled right then it wouldn't necessarily i mean if the if it's scaled right then you wouldn't necessarily have a huge drop off in um uh, if you had a huge drop in profits, it wouldn't necessarily push you back into a loss position unless you weren't expecting it. That is a problem for lots of companies like this, right? So if you actually anticipate in a normal boom bust cycle, right, what happens is they get caught thinking the boom's going to continue. Presumably because of the COVID stuff, people understand the boom won't continue in their business. They understand it's more one time. And so when you have a huge decline in sales again, it should bring you just back to where you were in terms of your profitability. Normally what would happen is in the bust part of a, a cycle, even if you, even if you just go from 160 in sales down to 90 million in sales, even though that's your old level, because you expanded your expenses and stuff during that time, you actually lose money. Mm-hmm. because if you buy into the boom, right? Yeah, so like sure. a home builder, if it drops to the level of home building that was doing 10 years prior and that it doesn't actually just make as much money as it was back then, it now has a cost structure that's totally different. So it loses money. But here you'd assume that you're anticipating that big drop, right? Um, so, I mean, this is not a business that has had good returns on invested capital in any past periods until just now. So it is a little hard to justify paying more than one time's book for it. I mean, it's hard to justify paying book, I would say. Um, and look, at they kept, I mean, to your point, right, they kept 
their operating expenses pretty much the same. 2020, mm-hmm. it was, you know, prior was 32 million, 30 million. And then the boom year for them was 35 million. Right. Well, there probably wasn't even enough time to hire expand people your and operating expenses and, yeah. and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, what this looks like, to be honest, th- we know this because of COVID, but this actually looks like when there's uh, conditions of shortage in, in, in a commodity industry. So commodity industries are interesting because people often say like commodities are bad business or whatever. Um, they're, they're actually earn some of the highest returns of any business when there's a shortage in the industry. So actually, if you have, um, if you're producing something that's a pure commodity and there's suddenly a shortage, you actually do very well in those years where there is the shortage, but then not in other years. Um, the only person who does okay usually in things like that is someone who has a very low um, cost uh, compared to others, the you know, relative cost that you have. So like it, you might say, well, you know, is copper a good business or something? Well, in a year where the world wants more copper than there is, actually it has really high returns for sure. a copper miner, right? Mm-hmm. But then and there's other long periods where that's not true. And so this looks a lot to me, especially when you look at things like the gross profit things. And that's the line to focus on, right? Look how consistent gross profit was from um, 2012 to 2021. It looks like a non-cyclical commodity business. If, I, you know, that sounds like an oxymoron, right? <laughs> but a business in which there may not be big differences between the players in terms of how much uh, they can get out of economically. Brand names might not be that important. It might be hard to differentiate yourself. There could be efficiencies that you could do a little better than the other guy or whatever. But if you look at the balance sheet and how much they generate on it, it's probably pretty stable. You have to have similar levels of inventories, receivables, things like that. And then you generate this very stable amount of gross profits. And those numbers and stuff look a lot like a commodity business that is not cyclical. Um, and then suddenly you introduce this abnormal one-time thing, mm-hmm. right? So, but the economics of it do seem a lot like a commodity business, except there isn't cyclicality because normally it should be a very predictable business. So this looks like a mediocre but predictable business, right? When you say that until yeah. this happened, mm-hmm. it's not unpredictable. It's very stable. Um, no, the gross profit margin, everything was yeah. Much- and, and to me, I always thought looking at this company in the past, it would be hard for them to lose a lot of money and actually to be financially endangered and stuff. I didn't buy that. You know, a lot of times people talk about net nets and things like that. Like there's a high risk of bankruptcy and all that, but they'd always have very little chance of losing large amounts of money in a short period of time. And then you have a balance sheet, which has a lot of like how many, inv- you know, inventory would be half a year sales. Um, which because of the mark, you know, that's not adjusted for the markup and everything. So it's it's even more than that as um, that they have in a given year. Um, so, I mean, like the balance sheet is a lot of, you know. It's very strong. No debt, tons of cash. Right. And, and the balance sheet's very, uh, now they have all that. But even the past periods, it's mostly inventories and accounts receivable. It's stuff that's fairly liquid, whatever. It looks like a business that wouldn't go out of business. Yeah. It looks like a business you could loan money to. Uh, but it looks like a business that will earn low returns on invested capital. So it should trade at a big discount to book. That's what I would have said before this happened now. Should we look at it just so people listening know? Should we look at the um, business description? Sure. So we've seen the business description people online have. 
but some people are listening on just the podcast. So just the keywords that they understand. Yeah, they manufacture and sell industrial protective clothing and accessories for the industrial and public protective clothing market worldwide. It offers limited use slash disposable protective clothing, such as coveralls, laboratory coats, shirts, pants, hoods, aprons, sleeves, arm guards, blah, 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 blah. Right. And then it says all the things that they normally do, but we can imagine that during COVID, it was less the janitors and the oil stuff and more the categories that they needed, which was, you know, um, in, in construction, they didn't need that as much either. But the things you can imagine for the mm-hmm. safety and protective clothing. Mm-hmm. So there can't be that many companies doing all that sort of stuff. It has to be a fairly small market that way. But it's highly diversified. They mentioned that there's 1,600 different safety and industrial supply distributors. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, it, it looks financially sound and all that. And it looked financially sound before, but it looks like way too high a price to pay for it, I would say. And then there's just the more general thing. Do you want to buy something that everyone else is focused on now? Or would you rather buy it at the times when no one is? And mm-hmm. I would just refer you back to that volume chart that you can see that something can suddenly, that people can be trading like a hundred times more volume in something when something like this happens than there was before. Yeah. That was a good breakdown. Good job out of you, Jeff. Good job out of you. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us. If this is the first time you're tuning in, hit the subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things. Once a week, we do a free form podcast where we uh, answer questions from listeners and viewers. So uh, email me, info at focuscompound.com, or you can DM them to me on Twitter. Be sure to sign up at focuscompound.com to get investment write-ups by Jeff. And if you're interested in our um, uh, capital management services, you can go to focuscompound.com and then click that invest with us button. And that we'll talk about all of that there. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning with us. Hit that five stars. We appreciate all the support and we will see you in the next podcast.